It's time to awaken your inner traveler and zip around the world as money is sent to the people who rely on it. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. When I was younger, I was surrounded by things made of wood and they were looking out of fashion. That's Adam. He's the owner of Free Tree Studio and he lives in Poland. I used to associate wooden decorations and and especially wooden furniture with something rustic, outdated. So when I started working with wood, I realized that if wood is given the right shape and form, and when you add some modern materials, then you can achieve very attractive and modern look. Adam is not only modernizing wood products, he's also leveraging the capabilities of an online marketplace to sell his creations globally. From the very beginning, when I started selling, I joined an IDR platform to me due to the huge customer's reach and the possibility of selling my products practically all over the world. I skipped my domestic market and I started to sell overseas. These digital platforms enable entrepreneurs like Adam to find customers and allow niche businesses like his, ones that, say, are built on the artisanal strengths of Eastern European craftspeople, thrive. The sale is made, then the money is on the account, and then I can receive it even the next day. This is very convenient. This fast global money movement makes a difference in terms of how artisans like Adam can make their businesses profitable. But not all the platforms are as convenient. I'm talking about one specific platform. So even if I sell an item on the first day of certain month, I am transferred the money on the 20th day of the next month. So it is like almost seven weeks. This long wait for disbursement sounds a bit, well, old-fashioned. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. I'm Indre Viscontis. On this podcast, we follow the money as it zips around the world, enabling our fellow humans to survive and thrive. And we talk to the experts who are building the tools that will transform the next generation of money movement. One of the fun perks of travel is being able to pick up gifts, souvenirs, or other products that aren't available in your country of origin. It's always fascinating to me when an item unique to a place begins to take on new meaning as you get to know the people and the culture behind it. Often, when we first land somewhere, we might catch a glimpse of a typical touristy item at the gift shop or on our way out of the airport, and we might even think to ourselves, who would buy that? Only to pick up one of those kitschy items on our way home. Why does that happen? Well, we associate objects with memories, and when we've had a good time and we've learned more about the meaning behind those objects, why the local artisans use those colors or materials, lavender in Provence or colorful yarn in Peru, they take on a new value, and we cherish them as much as our photos or other keepsakes, reminding us of that fabulous time we just had or the new friends we've made. Travel helps us discover new cultures, opens our eyes to new possibilities, and triggers new ideas and even life changes. But with online marketplaces and a growing ease of sending and receiving money across borders, 
We can access some of those local artisanal goods without having to stuff them in our suitcases or handbags. And in doing so, we can support and enable budding entrepreneurs, artists, and craftspeople who can't make a living solely by selling their goods locally and raise fortunes globally. So in this episode, we talk to Richard Mazaros, Vice President and Head of Cross-Border Money Movement for North America at Visa, and Robert Clayton, who leads the digital payouts for Carrot, the global commerce platform at Fiserv, to learn a little bit more about the infrastructure that has enabled us to buy a beautiful, handmade, modernized wooden decoration direct from Poland. Rich and Robert, welcome to Money Travels. Thank you. Thank you. So at the top of the episode, we heard from Adam, who is a artisan in Poland who makes goods from old pieces of wood. And despite the fact that the way that he works with wood and the wood that he uses is quite old fashioned, how he sells his goods is very modern and is a great example of the fact that cross-border payments, digital marketplaces, we're moving into a digital first world when it comes to these kinds of transactions. So Rich, maybe we could start with you about what you're seeing in terms of how cross-border payments are growing. Sure, thank you. So as economies adjust to this increasingly digital world and global money movement becomes more prevalent, there's a pressing need for flexible and easy to use solutions for sending and receiving money across borders. And while the pandemic has accelerated digital adoption, it's still clear that many companies and individuals continue to face complexities around money movement that can ultimately hurt a business's bottom line as well as the global economy. On the business side, cross-border payments have long frustrated treasury cash managers of small and large corporates alike. There are pain points including multiple days lag for payments to process, a lack of visibility, and costly foreign exchange fees. So despite these challenges, we're seeing more and more businesses increasingly operate across borders, and the rise of B2B e-commerce and online marketplaces are driving these cross-border transactions. But several factors are making it very complex. For example, payment infrastructure may vary by country. The landscape of regulations governing cross-border transactions is fragmented by geography, and providers are plagued by complex internal business processes and operations. And the list goes on. All these factors have the potential to make B2B cross-border payments slow, opaque, expensive, and heavily manual. So, Robert, tell us a little bit about Fiserv and what it is that you do in this space. Yeah, of course. And thanks for having me here, Andre. So, Fiserv is a global, we would say the original fintech. And Carrot Digital Payouts is a global engine that helps to enable money movement across the globe. We're a leader in the bi-directional fund flows that we're seeing on a rapidly increasing scale. Speed matters, but so do perceptions of security and familiarity. And the payout experience relies heavily on choice of how to get funded. And finally, global reach is enormously important, even in industries where you'd least expect it. So what are some of the considerations that you're making or that FISA was making as you were trying to address some of these issues for your clients? How did you solve some of these problems? I think for us, it's keeping a variety of options available for the way in which we assist companies in moving money. 
and certainly Beast Direct is an important channel for us to provide these types of services. An important matter here is that when you're talking about cross-border payments, there can be a very challenging patchwork of regulations and jurisdictions involved. And we've made substantial investments into making sure that our clients do this, air quoting, the right way in terms of, you know, complying with all the jurisdictions and regulations that may apply. What we've built is an engine that provides global payouts through a variety of channels, including Visa Direct, focused on choice and options available to the end recipient. I definitely see that as well, that a key trend here is optionality. Merchants are looking for ways to meet receiver expectations by offering choice as to how they can receive their money and specifically how quickly they can receive their money. And oftentimes, different delivery options, such as real-time versus same day or next day, can actually offer merchants and receivers a set of options for which they can choose what's right for them in that instance. And often, I also see that merchants can actually price those options differently by offering real-time as a premium. So what that means here is that if a seller wants to receive payment on a Saturday morning, they can actually receive those funds within 30 minutes on Saturday morning, not having to wait or behoven to a banking day, which would normally mean they would receive them on, let's say, Tuesday. And so that value proposition is often something that a consumer is willing to pay a premium or a convenience fee to be able to get their funds faster. Adam, our woodworker in Poland, sells his products all over the world. And the marketplace he uses to interface with North American customers gets him his payout very quickly. But the Asian marketplace he uses sometimes takes as long as seven weeks to send his money. It's hard to build a business when you have to wait that long to get paid. So what underlies this big difference in payout timing? I mean, I think it comes back to some of the challenges associated with cross-border payments today. One issue is the multiple institutions that are involved in the processing of the payment. The second is, and Robert mentioned this, and I completely agree with this, is the market fragmentation. There are different standards and requirements depending on the countries that you're sending to. This can make it challenging for a company to support those payments. If you're a marketplace and you send to one country, it's pretty straightforward. But when you're a marketplace sending to users or sellers in 10, 15, 20, 30 countries, it becomes a far more complex operational process to be able to meet each of those individual requirements by jurisdiction. I mean, that ultimately gets to the scale of being able to operate this payments business within a marketplace, which quite honestly may not be their core proposition in the market. They're a marketplace. They're not a payments processor, for instance. Again, the, the regulations by jurisdiction can also play a factor here. In some situations, there can be unique data requirements that are required by specific jurisdiction. There could be transaction limits in terms of the total amount that you can send per transaction or a daily or weekly, monthly, or even annual limits that you also have to maintain. So all of this adds to the complexity of being able to support kind of a global payments capability for one of these merchants. The traditional infrastructure around cross-border is network of correspondent banks. You've got three, four, five hops along the journey there that creates lag in funds delivery kind of creates a fee chain, if you will, as each intermediary takes their cut. 
And in the past, cross-border money movement was a relatively exotic thing. And it really only happened as wire transfers between large banks on behalf of corporations. What's changing here is that we're getting networks of networks that connect local clearing systems. And that's bringing down costs by using common infrastructure and by bringing cross-border payments into the mainstream, effectively bringing it more to a commoditized service. Exchange rate fluctuations also can play a factor here. The exchange rates can change rapidly and sometimes unpredictable, and that can ultimately impact the amount that the receiver receives in local currency. And so what Visa Direct helps is to facilitate the fast delivery of funds directly to eligible cards, bank accounts, and wallets around the world. It supports multiple use cases, including person-to-person remittances, account-to-account, business and government payouts to small businesses, entrepreneurs, et cetera. What it does is it helps to address some of these challenges by first and foremost, providing global reach. Visa Direct provides access to 7 billion endpoints across cards, accounts, and wallets across 190 countries and supporting 160 different currencies across these 60 use cases. And from a speed perspective, Visa Direct enables the ability to send money directly to debit cards in real time. And then ultimately here, Visa Direct provides access to this global money movement capability at scale. It's where we combine our network, innovation, value-added services to manage fraud and other types of payment capabilities to be able to optimize your program. And then ultimately, it's about security. And Robert mentioned this, and I couldn't agree more, is that it's about Visa as a trusted brand and network with over 60 years of payment experience, focusing on risk and compliance tools to be able to safely provide peace of mind to senders and receivers when sending their money, and also protecting their most sensitive information. So Robert, what are some use cases that you can tell us about where Fiserv really finds its niche? We do a variety of different use cases, you know, like I've mentioned, insurance claims to gig economy, to investments, gaming, all kinds of different things. Some of these are very regional in nature. One thing you'd find with particularly content creators, gigs, things like that is in their growth curve, they come, let's pretend a lot of them start in the United States, right? They kind of reach a point of inflection there. And the only way for them to grow is to move on to another country. In the initial phases, particularly of this growth curve, you know, the cost of domicility and business licensing and registration in new domicilities can be expensive to prohibitive, particularly if this is kind of like an experiment you're kind of putting on as a company. So with cross-border services, where we've partnered with Visa Direct, for example, is to enable some of this expansion on a cross-border basis so that these companies can dip their feet into another country without having to go be a company in that country at the same time. And that's very much where you see a lot of the use cases that we power together. That's really interesting. So correct me if I'm wrong. Let's say you are a content creator in the US and you all of a sudden want to sell your content in Europe or in Thailand. Then instead of having to register as a business in a European country or in Thailand, you would essentially use your services to serve as that bridge and still be able to collect payment from, say, advertising agencies that are based in Thailand that want to advertise in your platform. Yep, you've got it. 
So let's talk a little bit about North America and cross-border payments, both originating and or going to North America. As I mentioned at the top, that seems to be a place that is relatively fluid for Adam. He's able to sell his wares pretty easily, ship them from Poland, get paid when it comes to his North American clients. Is North America a leader in these kinds of cross-border payment platforms? First of all, when I look across the globe, North America by far is the largest send market for cross-border payments. Depending on the study that you see, somewhere around 7 trillion in PV is sent on a global basis. And when you look at that particular payment volume, I typically see that about half of that volume is really entrenched in six core use cases. The six use cases, the largest one is small and medium-sized business payables. So effectively cross-border invoice payments. And you know, today, oftentimes that is through a traditional international wire or in some extreme cases, maybe by check and it takes an extensive amount of time for that to clear. The second largest is online marketplace seller payouts. The use case that we've been talking about here, that's a huge market that has exploded over the last five to 10 years as these marketplaces have really gained provenance as a core means of commerce around the world. Remittances is still a a significant use case coming out of North America and around the world. Service providers, so this is things like the gig economy workers, the drivers, the deliverers, freelancers. There's also quite a lot of government payouts as well. And this can be everything from benefits payouts to pensions. And then the last of the six use cases is digital goods and royalties. So this is like developer payouts, content creator payouts. And these six use cases really represent the largest opportunities for cross-border money movement out of North America. And as we mentioned earlier, Visa Direct really supports not only these use cases, but a total of about 60 different use cases for money movement around the world. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the rise of digital wallets and what the future is for digital wallet use and cross-border payments, maybe in parts of the world where digital wallets really are much more popular. The wallet definition has changed substantially. We're finding that verticalization of wallets, first and foremost, is highly the trend. Every investment exchange, securities exchange, cryptocurrency exchange, pretty much every gaming company, they're all trying to serve as a stored value form of wallet. And powering the commerce both into and out of those wallets is a key area of focus for Fiserv through our Carrot Commerce Hub. The flip side of that is in a lot of emerging economies in particular, wallets have become the predominant form of commerce. And we see this a lot in Asia Pacific. We see this a lot in the Middle East and Africa, that there are very localized wallets that are dominant forms of currency there. So it's very natural then to see those as destinations for payouts to be received to. And offering as many of those as you can on a global scale is very important. I, you know, last count, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to 350 dominant wallets across the world. So we definitely focus a lot on that use case. And it started verticalized in in many ways. And it has become more, like I said, in a lot of these countries, the preferred form of commerce. And I'm sure based on news I've heard and read that Rich has some things to say about what Visa's doing with wallets as well. Yeah, Robert, I agree that in many markets, wallets have become the daily commerce vehicle that many consumers use. It's how they buy their coffee in the morning. It's how they buy their transit pass and conduct other types of daily transactions. And so the ability to reach those wallets is an important part of 
not only a value proposition for remittances, but for any type of cross-border money movement. Even from a funds disbursement perspective, the ability to send money directly into that wallet is of great value to a receiver because ultimately that's the device, the vehicle in which they spend their earnings on a daily basis. And what's so interesting around a lot of the markets that Robert mentioned is, is that in regions such as Asia-Pac and Africa and Latin America, the amount of wallets in the market is actually getting close to a number of bank accounts. And so this is really becoming the way that consumers in developing countries actually, quote, bank today. And I think what this does is this helps to drive financial inclusion. I mean, one of the things to kind of think about is, is how do you get consumers involved in the financial ecosystem? Oftentimes, payments can actually be that leading or that initial type of financial transaction that can actually get someone that's completely unbanked or underbanked into the banking system through the use of a digital wallet. And to Robert's point, Visa recently announced a partnership with Tunes that enables Visa Direct to, to send to over 78 different wallets in across 44 countries and territories. And there'll be additional announcements in the future soon. I wonder, Rich, if you could talk a little bit about how transparency and security, how Visa Direct solves that across borders, because, of course, different countries have different regulations. But when you're crossing a border, I almost wonder if there's a kind of no man's land. What are the regulations that apply? How does Visa Direct navigate that? There's a couple of things there I would mention. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, it's important when you're going into any received market is for the originator of the payment to have a clear understanding of what are the requirements within that particular market so that they understand their obligations and can ensure that they meet those obligations when sending funds. I think from a Visa Direct perspective, though, I mean, one of the things that we really focus on is transparency. And this is about the ability to understand, you know, who is sending that payment, what is the current status of that payment where possible, and also, you know, having a clear understanding around the fees associated with those payments, including the FX rate that's enabled to understand exactly how much money the end receiver will, in fact, receive. So being able to provide that transparency. Beyond that, from a risk and compliance perspective, there are a number of value-added services that payment originators can leverage that are built into the Visa network that can be used to be able to help provide information to the originators of those payments as to specific details around that transaction so that they can appropriately manage the risk and also optimize the performance of those transactions and ultimately their overall program. As we mentioned, one of the big use cases here are micro entrepreneurs who are using these marketplaces to sell their goods, and they won't necessarily have the knowledge or the tools to track the kinds of potentially fraudulent transactions. So when you have Visa Direct and you have access to information across billions of payouts, you can start to see trends in which there is a likelihood of fraud that is greater. And so I can imagine you could use artificial intelligence or machine learning to sort of predict whether a particular payout is more likely to be fraudulent or true. How do we ensure that when you have this fragmentation of these little micro entrepreneurs, there's still this ability to sort of see these kind of big picture fraud trends. 
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, you raise a really interesting point. I mean, what you know, Visa Direct is a tool, right? It's a tool that allows for global money movement that is used by these marketplaces. And so complementary to that, Visa also has capabilities that these marketplaces can use to be able to kind of manage that level of risk and or compliance associated with those particular transactions as well. Fiserv has also invested very heavily in fraud detection prevention specifically with Carrot Digital Payouts, because it is a very easy problem to have. The first point is kind of like education. I would say the marketplaces are probably more sophisticated on average than a lot of the other companies that we deal with in these scenarios. But we tell them what to look for, right? We're saying, okay, if you see a payment account suddenly switch cards and ask to be paid out, that should flag you, right? Hold that. Right. If you see somebody suddenly change their password and come in and request payment, that should flag you. Right. We also have our own toolkit as well that we stack on top of this as a value added service. And we look at a lot of data as the payout comes through and, and we advise our merchants to give us everything they possibly can. We're looking and saying, I see this same email address going to two different accounts. I've seen this person is supposed to be in Singapore, but I did a geo on him and I found them in Belarus. But I see this email address you've sent me was just created yesterday. It has no real history behind it. And we're looking for it. All of those things, we're looking for phone number validation with carrier. We're looking for jailbroken virtualized devices. We've built a really sophisticated tooling around combating digital fraud. We also mentioned content creators. And as we all know, social media, what's hot, what's not changes very rapidly. <laughs> and I imagine that when a content creator is building their brand or their business, speed is of the essence. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit specifically about how they can benefit either from working with Fiserv or with Visa Direct. I think the combination of the two is very complimentary and good for them. I mean, with with content creators like many others, this is typically one of multiple income streams for them, right? I think speed becomes a very important factor in many cases there. We could kind of say that most content creators work for some sort of marketplace, even if it's a content marketplace. You can generalize that use case very easily. As a marketplace, there's a little bit of a trade-off to make, particularly when you're working with these micro businesses that ultimately might be individual content creators and things like that, right? They want to attract talent, and that means they need to provide a platform that has great distribution. It also means they need to provide a platform that pays well, and pays well could be defined a lot of different ways, right? Amount, speed, frequency. If you go back to the way things were in the old world, like you had wires, you had some really, really slow correspondent but low cost forms of payment. Your content marketplaces, your marketplaces on the whole, even goods and services marketplaces had to make a tough decision. Am I gonna spend a lot of money on a fast form of payment to attract and retain sellers? Or am I going to use a slower, low cost form of payment to keep my margins healthy? And in the latter case, the effect is pretty obvious. You're not gonna get paid rapidly as a seller or as a content creator. In the former case, what's the marketplace's incentivization? It's to reduce the frequency of funding so they're not sending three, four wires a day at $10, $15 each, right? That's just a terrible economic scenario. So what they end up doing is ending up in a traditional payroll scenario anyway. So content creators, sellers on marketplaces are doing two weeks of work, maybe more, before they see their first dollar come in. And that's a big dissatisfier in any of those scenarios as well. 
So ultimately getting to the market, Visa Direct being one of these channels is something that we love to bring out to our customers. I see the same thing that Robert spoke about as well. And I think the other thing I would add is oftentimes there may be like a minimum payout amount that needs to be reached. So mm -hmm. a user may need to do a certain amount of work before they get paid out again because of the friction or high cost of kind of that traditional form of payment. And ultimately, as we kind of put ourselves in the shoes of that receiver, you know, that's their earnings, that's their cash flow, that's their food on the table for tonight or it's school supplies for their kids. And so the ability to be able to start to differentiate and offer a faster payout or even on-demand payout where I can request a payout multiple times a week, for instance, mm -hmm. allows them to enhance that cash flow. And if I'm a small business entrepreneur, I can reinvest that in inventory that allows me to build more goods that I can put on sale at the marketplace. And so ultimately allows me to grow the business. And so Visa is actually also seen where receivers actually choose what marketplace they go to because of that frequency of payout, because mm -hmm. it's such a material, meaningful difference for them. And so this is really where Visa Direct can change that experience and offer real-time payout for cross-border payments. Maybe I'm a, an Uber driver, for instance, and I just finished my shift. I'd like to receive funds because I need to stop at the grocery store on the way home. And again, this is where it provides that optionality to the marketplace to offer choice to the users. And I think that allows for a stronger value proposition for this marketplace to provide their users, which drives more users to want to be a part of that marketplace. And ultimately, that's how these marketplaces make money, is by getting more and more users on their platform. And so this can be a key differentiator to help them do that. Yeah, in a previous episode, we actually spoke to a grocery store worker who said that earned wage access, so being able to be paid out almost right after his shift, would make or break whether or not he'd take a job. You know, it was, it was, it was a benefit. So, yeah. so that resonates. And expected today in today's digital, always on economy, why do I have to wait a week to get paid when I just finished my shift? Yeah. I mean, if I can call a car on my phone, why can't I get paid for that ride? So outside of marketplaces, gig economy and content creator payouts, what are some of the other fastest growing cross-border payment use cases? Robert, you mentioned insurance claims, and I imagine with climate change, those are becoming frequent uh, or more frequent. I don't know. But what are some of these other potential growth areas? I got to tell you some things that we're seeing I think that expense reimbursements is mm. a good use case that's that's growing considerably. Business to business, I think it has been there as long as there's been cross-border commerce, but shifting from the traditional way of paying accounts payable and receiving accounts receivable is another one that we really like. Like we said earlier, places you wouldn't expect, as you mentioned, insurance, right? Retirees, expatriates living abroad still have property in their home country that still needs to be insured. They still have claims. Governments, I think you talked about that earlier, Rich, with various forms of benefits, also the expatriate scenario, as well as NGOs, you know, that nonprofits that have to pay for doctors on the ground in various countries and other sorts of aid in other countries are great. Yeah, I would add to, um, besides the list that Robert said, I would add to that content is a really interesting area as well, because content can mean a lot of different things. It can definitely be elements of social media. It can be kind of traditional kind of graphics art content that I might be creating some type of a marketing piece for a client, for instance. But then there's also increasingly content within gaming platforms and being able to kind of also kind of tie the royalty side of, I developed this application and it's been downloaded a hundred 
times over the last week and then paying out that royalties. And suddenly when you get into royalties, you can start to think about other types of content like music, video, and all of these types of platforms also kind of coming into the fold as well as to you know use cases that will ultimately require cross-border payment. So taking a moment now to travel around the world, as we do here on Money Travels, I wonder if you could talk about different regions, some which might be on the cutting edge and some where maybe there are cultural or political problems that are still going in the way. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the differences across different regions in the world when it comes to cross-border payouts? What we see is there are digital stages of adoption and I'm starting from a more generic sense of digital, right? And there are areas and regions that have had their own networks for a long time. I think Europe's very advanced within the EU, particularly, obviously, there's a single economic area there. I think when you're thinking more along the lines of cross-border digitization, we see a couple of factors at play, you know, one of which is where are goods and services being produced and performed? And the traditional economies where a lot of production took place in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, have lent themselves to digitization of payment. But what it's also becoming is as the digitization of the world in general takes place, you know, especially things like content and other services is growing with the curve of digital in general, right? And so there are areas of Asia-Pacific. I hit on Africa again as a place where rapid digitization is taking place. People are having consistent and common access to the internet and the the kinds of things that kept them from participating in the digital economy previously. And shifting in these regions and globally from a goods-based economy to a services-based economy. And that's driving a lot of this growth in those regions. We're seeing significant growth in certain markets within Asia Pacific, Africa, and Latin America. I mean, just look at the transformation in China over the last five years as it relates to kind of where they were from a payments perspective around early 2010 to where they are now with the emergence of a ubiquitous commerce device within countries. So I think that's obviously one that I think we need to continue to bring up as well. The other thing that I would say is not really a trend in a specific geography. It's kind of a trend across all geographies. We often talk about the digitization of cross-border payments. And oftentimes when we talk about that, we're thinking about how someone sends that transaction, especially when we think about a remittance. But increasingly, receivers want digitization as well. And what this really means is where historically receivers have wanted to pick up in cash, they now want to deposit into an account or via a card into an account or into a wallet. In this, obviously, we saw this trend even before the pandemic. It was accelerated with the pandemic because cash typically means going to a physical location, which is challenging to do when everything is shuttered. Now that receivers have gotten used to and see the advantages of digital receives, they're not going back. And one of the most interesting things here is Visa did a survey of just under 2,800 customers across leading LAC receive markets. And in every single case, customers preferred a digital receive to a cash receive more than two to one. I think the reason why this is so important to kind of understand here is the receiver is the one that's really driving this digital transformation. Whether it be from a remittance perspective or from a funds disbursement perspective, they're demanding 
that funds go into their accounts rather than having the traditional cash pickup with all of the friction associated and security concerns of picking up physical cash at a physical location. I think it's a really good point, Rich, and to think about what, as you define digitization, it's, you know, there are two parties here, right? And like corporations digitized their payables a long time ago, decades ago, right? That's fine, but... If I'm the guy that's got to go to the retail location to pick up the cash, she didn't digitize anything for me. And growth in digital across the board, you're right, the pandemic lockdowns, things like this are all accelerants to that. And that's why we think that consumer recipient choice is so fundamental that you've got to meet them where they are. And if where they are is not cash pickup anymore, then you've got to adapt to that. So in Money Travels, we like to end each episode with some rapid fire questions. Robert, I'm going to start with you. What developing technology do you predict will change once again how money moves between people or businesses? I'm going to say distributed ledger has the potential to be very impactful in the space. Rich, what's next on the horizon when it comes to cross-border payments? I think it's digital currencies and specifically central bank digital currencies. Robert, what's the biggest unmet need in cross-border payouts? If I put it simply, I would say it is faster, lower cost, and higher predictability. All right, last one, and this will be for both of you. Can you predict the future of money movement in a single catchy phrase? How about fast for all? I like it, fast for all. Rich, what about you? Sending money around the world should be as fast, easy, and reliable as sending an email. Great. Well, Rich and Robert, thank you so much for being on Money Travels. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is great. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Money Travels. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow the show and leave a review so more people can find it. Until next time, I'm Indre Viscontis, and this has been Money Travels, presented by Visa. Visa.